Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, February 7th, 2021, and this is show number 822. Well, I'm really excited about this week's show because we have a fantastic interview from CES. I had the great pleasure of talking to the USB Implementers Forum Chairman, Brad Saunders, and Ramal Ismail, the USBIF Chief Technology Officer. These two gentlemen explain USB 4 and why it's so cool. Brad starts with explaining USB 3 and all of the advances we gained with that. Then he explains what USB 4 brings us and where Thunderbolt 4 comes into play. Ramon then does a demonstration of the power of USB 4. The interview is also available as a video, which might be fun to go back and watch to see the demo, and also to cement your knowledge on USB 4 by hearing it a second time. I've listened to it three times so far just to make sure I remember what I learned, and it was absolutely fascinating. This week, our guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond is Ken Ray, host of the Mac OS Ken podcast, hosted at macosken.com. Now, you may have been wondering why Ken had never been on Chit Chat Across the Pond before, but I just wanted to make sure he was going to stick with it, you see. Since he just hit his 15-year anniversary of doing Mac OS Ken, I decided it was probably safe to have him on the show. I asked Ken to come on the show to walk us through Apple's record-breaking quarterly earnings call and what the big numbers mean. So, like, how big is $110 billion? What drove Mac sales up 21%? What drove the services number so high? We had an absolute blast recording this episode, and he says he'll come back every quarter and do it again. I would love to do this. I think it'd be a fun new tradition for the NoSillaCast. You can find Ken Ray on Twitter at MacOSKen, and you can find all of his wonderful shows at MacOSKen.com. I finally understand why people like the noise cancellation on AirPods Pro, and it's all thanks to Frank Petrie and his review of the Chargin Airfoams Pro Active ear tips that he did back in December. Now, I don't want to repeat anything he said because it's a terrific review and needs no elaboration, but I wanted to add on my experience. I have the original AirPods, and I love them. When the AirPods 2 came along with the charging case, I handed down my originals, and I loved the new version. I wouldn't actually recommend the charging case, by the way. I have a Qi charging pad right next to a lightning cable, and I always plug in over lightning to charge. I use the cable because it's faster than finding the right spot on the Qi charger, and I'm always sure that it is charging. Anyway, the AirPods Pro came out at an opportune time because one of my AirPods, uh, the second version, they, it kept not connecting or claiming it had zero battery when it had been charging for literally a whole day. I bought the Pros and I was immediately disappointed. The smallest ear tips didn't keep the headphones securely in my ears. I was constantly knocking them out while on my interminable walks around my neighborhood and I would usually say a non-Girl Scout safe word. Okay, not usually, every single time. I also didn't really favor the noise cancellation. It was okay, but I didn't understand why everyone was so gaga over it. I often trick Pat Dingler into entertaining me on my long walks, and after hearing me knock out an AirPod and swear at it on nearly every conversation we had, she suggested I try the Compli, Comply, C-O-M-P-L-Y, foam ear tips for AirPods Pro. I bought a set, and I would say they worked slightly better. They still fell out, fell out of my ears, but like maybe only half as often. I went to the ChargeN site after hearing Frank's review of the ChargeN Pro Actives, and they had a video of a guy exercising by running up these really steep stairs from a beach up to the street. I realized that video was actually shot in my neighborhood. Well, this guy wasn't having his AirPods fall out of his ears, maybe they would work for me. 
Before my Charging Air Foams Pro Active showed up, I was listening to an episode of the Accidental Tech Podcast where John Syracuse suggested something that seems obvious now that he said it, and yet it had never occurred to me. He pointed out that when you select your ear tips, you don't have to put the same size in each ear. In fact, he said it's unlikely your ear canals are the same size. That just basically blew the top of my head off. After messing about with the smallest tips on the Charge-Ins, I ended up putting a small in my left ear but chose a medium tip for my right ear. charge says that since these are made of a memory foam kind of material, you need to put them in at a specific technique. First, you squeeze the tip to make it small. Then you shove the AirPod in your ear with the stem pointing straight forward, and then you kind of rotate it to clock it down into place. They say to keep holding it in place while the foam expands to fill your ear canal. I can even hear it expanding, so it's pretty easy to tell when it's done. You repeat for the second ear, and then you go run up and down those stairs. Now, while my main goal of not having my AirPods fall out of my ears spontaneously was immediately achieved with the charge-ins, I had a very pleasant surprise. The noise cancellation of AirPods Pro is amazing! I can't believe I paid $250 for these a year and a half ago, and I never before heard what they can do. When I walk, it's like every car is an electric vehicle now. It it turns out that's actually less dangerous because I know I have to be constantly on the alert for cars, not just the ones I can hear. I can enthusiastically add my five-star approval rating to Frank's excellent review of the Charging Airfoam's proactive ear tips for AirPod Pro. We all depend on USB in our daily computing lives, and the introduction of USB 4 is bringing us huge advancements in what we can do with it. The USB Implementers Forum, or USB IF, is a nonprofit organization, or corporation, I should say, founded by the gr- a group of companies that developed the Universal Serial Bus specification. USB IF doesn't make any products, and they don't speak for any of the hardware vendors, but rather they facilitate the development of USB peripherals and promote the benefits of the products that have passed compliance testing. With that preamble, I'd like to introduce two people to you, the USBIF's chairman, Brad Saunders, and Ramal Ismail, the USBIF chief technology officer. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I told these guys that they could get down and nerdy with me. So uh, you know, buckle up, everybody. We're going to have some fun. <laughs> Depends on where your subject matter goes, of course. <laughs> right, right. Well, so we know we're supposed to be excited about USB 4, but I think it's fair to say that most of us are probably under misconceptions about what USB 4 is and what it's not. Can you clarify this for us? What is USB 4? Okay, so let me give you very brief background. So we all grew up with USB 2, the original USB, um, and then uh, super speed USB came out. And of course, that's associated with a spec that people know as the USB 3 standard. And for super speed USB, it brought a lot more speed than USB 2. We had 5 gigabit and 10 gigabit and 20 gigabit eventually. And please note, 20 gigabit USB required the USB Type-C connector. And super speed USB brought the ability to have data go both in and out of the computer at the same time, much faster, plus it was bi-directional in data transfer. USB 4, though, is a new architecture is on top of that. And in fact, it's complementary to those two technologies. USB 2 exists in parallel to USB 4, just like it did uh, in parallel to SuperSpeed USB. But USB 4 now takes the super speed USB 
and includes that protocol as one of some of the tunnels that it uses over the USB Type-C cable and connector. So USB 4 brought this ability to merge data communications as a separate tunnel from normal uh, display communications. So if you're trying to drive a display, you can do that in parallel to uh, exchanging data. Now, everybody has probably heard that USB 4 is um, a, another version, or at least based on what Intel delivered a few years back called Thunderbolt 3. So what happened was the Intel architecture for Thunderbolt 3 was contributed to the USB group, and we developed USB 4 to do essentially the same architecture, which is display and data in parallel, and it allows us to manage the bandwidth of the two. The data itself is super speed USB. It's our friend. It's just now being carried in one of the uh, tunnels across the interface. Okay, so the, the reason you're spe- you're uh, focusing on data and display at the same time is if you have a single cable going from your computer to a display to devices that are hooked up to it, then you can you you'd be able to say write to a disk while sending video to a display. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So here's the motivation: when we developed the USB Type C solution initially, we were taking this older style standard A connector and now making it a nice, simple, small, easy to plug in. Reversible. Reversible. (laughs) Flippable. Yay. Yay. Yeah. So as we did that, computers still had a lot of connectors. One of the other things we did in parallel with that, of course, is also deliver more power over that connector. So now the notebook computer was saying, oh, great, I got data and power but I still have a bunch of other connectors on there. What are my opportunities to reduce the number of connector types on my product? The one that really stuck out was display, right? HDMI, mini display port, those various connectors. That is really what brought about the kind of early technology associated with this, which is the display port alternate mode, And of course, Thunderbolt, which both chose to optimize trying to bring data and display out of the same connector. I want to make you pause there a little bit because I've just happened to this week been learning a little bit about this uh, display port alternate thing because mm-hmm. I have a an older DisplayPort Apple display and I wanted to plug it into a PC that's got HDMI and that's a no bueno. I did a post, I think after I talked to you guys once before entitled, just because it fits doesn't mean it'll work. And I knew I could get all the connectors together to plug it in, but I discovered that it didn't matter. I would have to spend a lot of money to make it actually do something. Yes. So DisplayPort alternate is some other technology? The simple way to look at this is in the computer PC world, and I include Macs as PCs. Yes. Um, In that world, DisplayPort technology is the predominant interface for external monitors. In the consumer electronics world, it's HDMI, TVs, Mm. right? Right, right. And in certain notebook brands, they kind of cross over because... Uh, take a major notebook OEM, they cater some of their notebooks to business users, computer mm-hmm. types. Hence, they have DisplayPort connectors. Okay. Or same company sells very similar computer to a end user who has televisions, and the thing they put an HDMI interface on it. 
it turns out you can bridge from DisplayPort to HDMI very, very easily. And as such, you'll find a lot of little adapters, dongles, yeah. which are USB Type-C. They actually do DisplayPort alternate mode at the interface. And then they have an HDMI connector on the end. Right. I, all I wanted was the other way around. Well, that one's not commonly available, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I did find for about $100, I could get an active power device that would do it. But right. that it's doing all the math, apparently. In the reverse direction, I don't think it's quite as easy. Yeah, but okay. it turns out DisplayPort alternate mode adapters to HDMI is a you know volume seller in that little dongle. But that said, um, most home users that are going out and buying new displays through their home offices, they're getting a DisplayPort-oriented display, or better still, one that has USB Type-C connections directly on it. Yeah, it seems that USB Type-C is really starting to take off in displays now. I just interviewed ViewSonic where they were showing off all of their USB-C displays. And it just, I mean, that just brings joy to your heart when you see that. When you have a USB-C display and USB Type-C, that's the shape of the connector, USB mm -hmm. Type-C on a, on a laptop, what is the protocol that's going across that? Is that DisplayPort? Is it HDMI? No, it, in, in most cases today, it is DisplayPort using what we call the DisplayPort alternate mode, which is, by the way, the specification for that, if you're techie, it was written by the organization that owns the DisplayPort technology, which is the VESA, VESA organization. And they worked with us to coordinate on being able to use a protocol we put in USB Type-C that allowed for it to switch into this alternate mode. Okay. Now, Thunderbolt happens to be another alternate mode, right? Thunderbolt is the one that was invented by Intel and marketed by Intel to be, again, do display and data at the same time. And to be techie still, Thunderbolt 3 tunnels, remember I mentioned tunneling, DisplayPort technology, and PCI Express technology. PCI Express is traditionally seen as an inside the computer interface that's a data interface. Right. The old the old card slots in the big tower right. PCs, those were PCIe. And that technology brought those two together and it allowed you to connect displays and external technology that was compatible with PCI Express. And in the Thunderbolt 3 solution, one of those technologies happened to be a USB host controller the ability to then send USB connectivity downstream of a Thunderbolt dock. They do it by putting a PCI Express-based host controller. Now, here's the difference. USB 4, if I put my Intel hat on, I, we donated to the USB community the underlying technology of Thunderbolt and, in fact, made it an open standard by doing such. But this is USB technology, after all. So the data interface became the super speed USB data interface. So USB 4 can actually tunnel three types of data, display port data, super speed USB, which is our favorite. And of course it can also tunnel PCI Express. Part of the reason for doing that was to help maintain backward compatibility, of course, to the existing uh, Thunderbolt ecosystem. Okay. All right. Well, I understand why most of us are confused because that was a lot. That was a lot of information. Your elevator speech on USB, what USB four is? What would that? What would the short version of that be? 
Okay, it's obviously adds higher performance over super speed USB because now we have 40 gigabits per second. It, instead of just being USB data only, it's display and data. And again, DisplayPort is the interface for display and USB is the interface for data. And then of course, PCI Express could optionally be used as well in parallel. So it tunnels all that content over one connection. And the third thing that's kind of important is it manages the bandwidth between them. Okay. To make a nice effective solution for the user. You know, balance your display performance with your data performance and so forth. Does all that negotiation yeah. for you. Okay. Okay. I like that. That was good. I liked all the depth and then I liked narrowing it down good. to to the pieces, but that got us there. That's great. So, all right. We're sold on USB 4. Okay. I'm I'm a believer now. I'm this. I need this. This is fantastic. How would a normal human know? Well, not even a normal human, but one of us. How would we know if a computer or peripheral has USB four? Since they're all USB Type C connectors with all these other options, how would we know? Yeah, that's that's a good question. But on the other hand, for most users, it turns out you don't really need to know. But so let me be clear first that. When you connect two things together, the protocol we have behind USB Type-C does its very best to get you the best connection you can get based on, you know, the common capabilities between two things. If it's only USB 2 capable, but it's USB 4 host, you get USB 2. Okay. And by the host, you mean the computer. Is that correct? Right. If it's on uh, super speed USB, you get super speed USB. If it's USB 4, of course, on both sides, you get the best of both worlds, right? You get the best. Now, obviously, there's a cable in the middle. So you need to have a cable that does more than USB 2. There are USB type C cables that are USB 2 only. They're kind of popular in the phone and charging space. That was going to be one of my questions was, uh, my following question was going to be, how would how would we know if the cable we have is, I mean, I've, I've got piles of USB-C cables here. I'm, they're all over my desk right now. I've got them everywhere. How do I know which ones are going to do USB 4, only USB 2? Right. USB-IF has always had a cable marking icon. And I have to say, to say that the, the industry at large has hit and miss on whether it uses this icon properly on your cable. Okay. We, as an organization, we can't absolutely mandate it, that it get used. And in, interestingly enough, some of the decisions made to not use it are by people who think they're making their cable cooler by not having things like icons. <laughs> no, no, on no, 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 no. I see the symbol. It helps me. <laughs> I agree with you. Absolutely. And, you know, USB-IF does a, a, a job of advertising and trying to convince people that this is the right way to do it. So there are specific icons for the plug of your cable. There are specific uh, logos for when you buy a cable, the packaging. Okay. And, there, and these logos will tell you whether it's the old USBs like high-speed USB, or whether it's super-speed USB, or whether it's in fact USB 4. So I've got a great idea. Here's what you do. Come out with um, a, a template 
for users to make their own little wraparound cable designators that tell, like, when you buy it, you've got the package. It says it's USB 4. Now I've got, I can download your little thing, run it through my little sticker printer thing, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. my labeler, label maker, and I put it on all my cables and then I'm okay. So Ramon just took would, that idea and he's going to go build in his garage a cable, a tape, cable labeling business. Um, not necessarily a bad idea. I would actually do that. I mean, if you had that, I would do it. <laughs> well, I know somebody, you know, that does that kind of stuff. You know, with all the cables he buys, he, you know, labels them. I have a, a you know, multiple boxes. <laughs> sure, we all do. No, we label all the ones that go down under the desk. So when you're crawling under there using your phone as a light, you can go in and go, oh, is this the display? Whoops, no, that was my computer I just unplugged. You want to solve that problem. <laughs> There are icons and, you know, Allison, we, we sent you a uh, image capture of all our defined cable icons. Now, here's the thing. We're also looking at simplifying these things around the cables. First thing to note, all super speed USB cables that are USB type C can provide USB 4 connectivity. First things first. Say, say that one more time. All existing superspeed USB cables, obviously I mean ones that function properly, that are USB Type-C to USB Type-C connectivity are USB 4 compatible. Now, you didn't have to go buy a USB 4 cable. You probably already own one. Okay. Okay. So all superspeed USB Type-C cables, cables are USB 4 compatible. Okay. Now, USB 4 offers 20 gigabits per second and a new higher 40 gigabit per second solution. Okay. The existing cables are compatible with the USB 4 20 gigabit per second solution. Okay. Out of the box. Okay. Now, uh, the really cool thing about this, I'm even talking about the original super speed cable that you might have bought that was rated at 5 gigabits per second. Oh, really? Oh, really? So uh, there's a technical simplification for you. As long as you know the cable is a super speed cable, you've got USB 4 connectivity with that cable. So I've seen the, uh, I've got a Caldigit TS3 Plus dock and on the back of it, it says SS. Mm -hmm, that's next super speed. That's the super speed symbol. I don't remember ever seeing it on a cable though. So there is a little icon. It has a little SS with the Trident. Okay. And there are three versions of that that are labeled 5, 10, and 20. Okay. Very early on, there were ones that said SS with the Trident that didn't have a number. Uh -huh. And that was back in the day when we only had five. Okay, but you're saying those still would work? Yeah. Th those would still work with USB 4? At 20 gigabits per second. At 20 gigabits? That's fantastic. Now, why does that work? The geeky answer is that we made the devices and the hosts take on more responsibility for some of the signal uh, gain control across the cable such that this old cable, which might've been seemed lossy, if you might call it, isn't as lossy or degrading when we're running USB 4 operation. So USB 4 as a signal interface is um, more capable in that sense. Okay. So it works with older cables, really cool. We're now in the process of getting all of the 10 gigabit per second and 
uh, 20 gigabit per second super speed USB cables to move to the new USB 4 20 gigabit per second cable icon, which is new. Okay, does it have a 20 on it? It has a 20 on it. It's got a little nicer design, a little more modern. And um, it lines really well with our uh, certification brands, which you find when you buy the product on the package. Yeah, I wanted you to talk about the the certifying. So, so one of the things that I read was that USBIF promotes the benefits of products that have passed compliance testing. Mm-hmm. So w- w- what are those benefits and how will we know if a product has passed that compliance so testing? So all the products that pass are eligible to then uh, use under license the uh, USBIF defined certification logos, which are a nice colorful logo with the USB broadly predominant in the logo, plus the speed rating. So it's got the name of USB. Okay. So it's simple USB and it's this fast. It's 20 gigabits per second or 40 gigabits per second, for example. Now this goes on the, the marketing, the packaging of the product. When you go to buy it, retailers are able to use this to help educate people that this is what you look for. Okay. Okay. And on the cable, a cable that's certified can also use the certified cable icon that goes with it. And again, it has the number of 20 or 40 and the familiar little Trident, right? And okay. if your cable's marked with that or your port is marked with that icon, or when you bought the cable, it came with that certification logo, or you bought the computer, or you bought the device... Then you know you have something that has gone through very rigorous testing that really aims to verify the interoperability of that cable with other products that are similarly capable or tested. And in fact, uh, one of our key responsibilities for our CTO is to oversee this uh, program for certification and compliance. Okay, great. Well, so this does tell me our... Our first goal should not be what is the cheapest cable I can possibly buy. Start with the certification and then look for the cheapest cable right. within that, or you know, from a right. reputable and company. And by the way, we're you know, USBIF spends a lot of time working with some of the major retailers to try to educate them and convince them the benefits of you know stocking the certified product, right, versus the right, lesser right. untested product. By the way. Not being certified doesn't mean the product isn't good. It's just there's no no real, you know, proof, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've had Ramon uh, sitting in the sidelines here waiting, but he did a, a spe- spectacular demo when we were at Pepcom. And um, I, I, hopefully, Ramon, you can explain this for the audio-only audience while you're also doing uh, letting people see it in the video. I'll try at least a minute. And I mean, what we're trying to do is to actually demonstrate the things that we just talked about. You know, what, we've got a, a laptop from Dell, an XPS 13, which has USB 4 built in. And uh, we're connecting to an OWC dock which has USB 4 as well. Yeah, o- OWC just came out with that USB 4 dock, it right? Came out with USB 4 dock, yes. Uh, and then we have two drives connected. One uh, that connects over PCIe, so it does PCIe tunneling, and it's a USB 4 drive. And then we have a USB 3 drive, so it does USB 3 tunneling over the thing. So now, And then we're also connecting to a, a 5K display. So we, you know, we just talked about these three things, which is tunneling PCIe, tunneling USB, and tunneling display port. So I'm going to run the video so that now, you know, just demonstrating the videos is, 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 is playing. 
or start running a read and a, a write to both these drives at the same time. So we're watching a video going on on this 5K, giant 5K display, and you're running a disk speed test on both of those. On both discs. of those discs at the same time. And as you can see, I mean, and three go on, on the radio, we actually are moving about 3,000 megabytes per second in reads from the two drives. And we're doing about 2,000 megabytes per second writes on the two drives, while at the same time displaying 5K video. So this is all in USB 4 over a single cable, right? And what I would like to say, you've, you've asked about this, how do I know if things just work? You know, with, you know, I've got another, I, I, I buy, you know, these things, these are all brand new, they're all USB 4, they all support USB 4. What I'm going to do is also connect to a, a Note 20 Ultra, which is does not support USB 4, but it has the Type-C connector on it, right? So I'm going to go ahead and disconnect. So you've just removed the display, or the computer and from the display. From, from the OWC dock, the whole thing, right? And okay. I'm going to go ahead and connect that, and it moves into Samsung Dex mode. As you can see now, this is now showing the display. Now, obviously, the Samsung Note cannot drive a 5K display, but it's running 1080p. Okay. It's running USB 2 and DisplayPort Alt mode. Okay. But just automatically, the OWC dock automatically, you know, they, they exchange information, figured out that it only does USB and DisplayPort Alt mode, moved into that configuration. And then I'm going to, and I also have a mouse here, which I can, it's connected behind the dock. So I go to the mouse, I go to my files. We have the USB storage here. So now you're, you're connecting to those storage drives that are connected through the dock? Yeah, through the phone, which is now the host. And as you can see now, I'm playing the same video I was playing before, but now it's playing off of the drive, reading it, and then displaying it out onto the big screen TV. So it's going from the drive through, uh, through the through phone? Through the dock, to the phone. The phone is decoding it and then sending it out the display. So that, that's your, your demonstration of how it's negotiating all of this. And I didn't have to worry my pretty little right. head and about so, it. Right. And so, you know, yeah. Do it. Does it support USB? Does it support uh, uh, USB 4 or USB 3? All these things. I mean, the, the beauty of USB from the days we've started with USB 1, you know, USB 2, and to today is the fact that we support backwards compatibility, right? And so, in, as, as I think Brad mentioned earlier, it will negotiate to the highest capability that it can possibly connect at and then use the, that capability to, to communicate with peripherals and other things you're connected to, while at the same time providing power as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting fully charged up as well. And so I, I, the, the, the phone won't run out of juice because I'm running all this stuff. Yeah, you were powering the notebook earlier as well. Yeah, and I was powering the notebook earlier with the same, with the same thing, with a much, at a much higher rate. It negotiated the power levels that each of these things can can handle and then determines that that's the speed at which it's going to charge the laptop or the phone for that matter. Oh, that, so this really wrapped this together beautifully. Um, I, I I know that Brad explained it to us in in you know more theoretical terms, but to see it it live and actually happening, Ramon is is fantastic. Bringing those two pieces together, I, this is this has been great, guys. Um, I really appreciate the time you spent, and I think it's clarified a lot of it for me. And I'm going to be uh, hopefully we'll be a little more informed on uh, what we should get and what how to explain it to normal people. And I especially like the fact that maybe we. We don't need to explain it to people because it'll just figure yeah, itself out. I don't know if you want to, I mean, we should ca tackle the elephant in the room, which is, of course, you know, how is USB 4 and Thunderbolt, you know, relate, right? Just to be clear for those who will obviously see uh, the Intel branding program around what's called Thunderbolt 4, Thunderbolt 4 is USB 4. 
Thunderbolt 4 is USB 4. It is USB 4. And what Thunderbolt 4 is from Intel's perspective, and again, it's an Intel branding program. It's not a technology per se. All they're really doing is they're trying to help Thunderbolt 3 customers relate to this new move in technology to USB 4. So it provides some continuity for those users to go from Thunderbolt 3 to Thunderbolt 4. Hopefully they'll get the 4 is the commonality between USB 4 (laughs) and Thunderbolt 4. But what it also does is Intel is trying to promote like a, you might call it an Uber brand, an Uber level of performance. A Thunderbolt 4 product is intended to support 40 gigabits per second. It's intended to support, you know, all the backward compatibility with Thunderbolt 3. Um, it's designed to support, you know, many more displays and things like that. So it's really just setting a very high bar. But USB 4 product that isn't branded as Thunderbolt 4 will work perfectly fine with it. And in fact, could be just as capable. It's just really a choice of branding. So a Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt 4 device is a USB 4 device, but a USB 4 device is not necessarily a Thunderbolt it, 4 device? It can be. Uh, the, it can be, but it isn't necessarily. It'll probably have, they may have made a choice to maybe, maybe it's only 20 gigabits per second. Right, but if it's Thunderbolt 4, it's 40 right. bi- and megabits per second. It'll still operate at 20 gigabits per second. Perfectly fine. What were you going to say, Ramon? You said megabits, and I was just saying 40 gigabits per second. Gigabits. Oh, thank you. Yeah, very important distinction. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, no, I'm, I had that in my list of questions, and I skipped it. I, I, uh, I forgot to ask that question. didn't want to overlook that. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my favorite things I wanted to understand because it uh, the confusion is there. I, I do appreciate also that I think it's going to be less confusing going forward than it has been. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's something everybody can appreciate. But our favorite thing really is that the connector goes back and forth, to be fair. right? <laughs> you know, I, I, it it's relatively safe for everybody to just take it and plug it together and see if it works. They're not going to damage anything. And they'll be hopefully mildly surprised. It always does what they had hoped it would do. It might not work going HDMI to DisplayPort like you were trying to do. <laughs> but that's how I'm trying to do old that, technology. Yeah, you're so really kind of forward, mixing old and new. But again, if it's old USB, it will always work well with new USB products to the capabilities of its original intent. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, I think that's a good place for us to stop. This was this was fascinating. I think I could talk to you guys all day. Really appreciate uh, Brad and Ramon, you coming on. If people want to learn more about what USBIF does, where would they go? Well, the association is USB.org. Oh, there you go. That's easy to remember. That's pretty easy. All right. Thank you very much for coming, both of you. Thank you for having us. Okay, I told you guys that was good. Isn't that amazing? I just I just love everything I learned there. I really got a kick out of that. And I, I think I'll probably go back and listen another time just to, again, like I said, make sure I remember everything that they taught me. Well, this week, I'm not going to panhandle for the show, but I do have a request. If you could take a moment to do a review, an Apple podcast for the NoSilicast, Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, and or Programming by Stealth, that would be swell. Now, I know Apple Podcasts may not be your podcatcher of choice, but evidently it's the only game in town for podcast reviews. And if you review the show and, I mean, you don't hate the show, it can get more people to know about the show. So that would be really fun for everybody. And so I'd really appreciate it if you gave the shows a review.
A few weeks ago, Ray Hedrick of ViewSonic came on the show to talk about their USB-C line of, he- of displays, which I feel haven't gotten much press in the Mac community. ViewSonic loaned me the VP2785 2K. This is a 27-inch display with 2K resolution and has a plethora of connections to suit every need. While this display supports USB-C with all its USB 3.1 connectivity goodness, it also has ports to allow it to be backward compatible with older technology. We'll get into the connections in a bit, but let me explain why I chose this particular model from ViewSonic. ViewSonic has a lot of models of displays. And by a lot, I mean 119 if I counted correctly. The first two digits of the ViewSonic monitor's model number tell you who it's designed for. The VP series I'll be talking about here uh, about here is for their professional line of displays. They've also got VA for home and office, TD for touch, VG for business, VX for entertainment, and XG for gaming. Within each of those categories, they've got 22-inch, 24-inch, 27-inch, and 32 inches and up. The VP2785 2K is part of their professional line and supports a resolution of 2560 by 1440, otherwise known as 2K, and it's priced at $613. That's the list price. You can get a little cheaper elsewhere. While 4K or even 5K displays are amazing, they're out of reach in terms of price for a lot of people. So I chose the 2K display to see if maybe it hit a sweet spot with better resolution than 1080p, but not at the expense of 4K. To give you a frame of reference, the equivalent professional display from ViewSonic at 4K is $919, so it's $300 more than the VP2785 2K. Boy, that number just rolls off the tongue. I've got to keep saying it, though. The VP2785 2K comes with a stand, or you can use it with a standard Visa mount. You tilt the display onto the bracket of the stand, and it locks into place with a definitive snap. You probably remember my complaint about the height adjustment on the Pro Display XDR from Apple, which is ergonomically bad for a woman of normal seat height. I have to tell you, I have no such complaint with the ViewSonic. I can bring the bottom of the display down to only two inches above the tabletop, which is actually significantly lower than I need it, and it has an upward travel range of 5.1 inches from there. Now, I can't use it standing like I can with the XDR, but you know what? If you really want to use a display standing, wouldn't you need the desk itself to go higher anyway? I'd rather have it be the right height when I'm sitting. The VP2785 2K can also rotate 90 degrees right or left into portrait mode. It tilts forward 5 degrees and back 21 degrees. The VP2785 2K has an anti-glare coating, but I had a particularly challenging window behind me at one point, and I found the ability to tilt useful to help eliminate the little bit of glare I was experiencing. It also rotates on the base, which is kind of cool. In case you're worried about the display moving around too much, there's a pin you can insert under a discrete black rubber gasket on the support that will hold it still. Now, my first use of the VP2785 2K was to hook it up over USB-C to a 16-inch MacBook Pro. I'm a tough judge of a monitor since I've been looking at 500-nit brightness displays at 5 and 6K for the past five years. At first, looking at 2K at 300 nits versus 5K at 500 nits, there was a notable difference. But after working with it for a while, I stopped noticing the lower resolution and brightness. Having recently had the pleasure of working with a 1080p screen, the VP2785 2K looked great. I cannot get used to 1080p anymore. When I looked at this, I kept reminding myself that this good-looking screen was only around $600, not $1,000 like a 4K screen. 
Most people seem to lower the brightness on their displays, so I think 300 nits is probably great for the vast majority of people. Like I said, I do like a really bright screen. I'm, I'm picky about that. But I put a, a photo in the show notes of the ViewSonic display next to the Pro Display XDR. It's a totally unfair comparison with the XDR at literally 10 times the price, but I think it actually shows how good the ViewSonic display looks. It's almost as bright and the color almost as true using the Adobe RGB setting on the ViewSonic. One of the great joys of USB connectivity for displays is that this one cable can carry the video signal, audio, data, power, and USB. Remember just hearing about it from the USB uh, forum guys? Anyway, I plugged in this one uh, cable to my Mac, and then I plugged my Logitech C920 webcam and my Samsung Meteor mic into the display's two USB-A ports. I used the included USB-C cable to connect that display to the Mac, and as expected, the USB devices worked, the video looked great, and because the VP2785 2K supports power delivery, it also charged my MacBook Pro. Now, it's only a 65-watt charger through the, uh, through the display, but that's actually enough to keep up with the 16-inch MacBook Pro. It, it's kind of confusing. It's supposed to be 95 watts, but it seems to do a, 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 just a fine job at 65 watts. It just takes longer. It'll keep up with it at least, won't let it drain. I used the VP2785 2K with this setup for a Zoom call, and it worked perfectly and simply. Now, I mentioned up front that the VP2785 2K has a lot of connectivity and supports older technologies. I took a picture of all the ports on the display so I can match them up to the spec sheet and be able to explain what they're all for, because there's a lot of them. I do have to admit that I had to bring in my research assistant, Stephen Getz, for this part because I couldn't quite figure out why some of these connectors were there. The ports are broken up into two groups, those for display and those for USB. On the display side, there's the USB-C port I already mentioned, and that's the one that gives you power delivery and USB and video all over that one connector. But it's also got HDMI and two DisplayPort connectors. I had to ask Stephen why there would be two DisplayPorts, and he explained that this is so you could daisy-chain two displays together. Makes sense. See why I keep him on staff? On the USB-C side, on the USB side, I should say, I got really confused. There's a second USB-C port, and the spec sheet says 15 watts downstream. Well, I knew that the other USB-C port had 65 watts of power delivery, so what's this one saying 15 watts? I don't understand. Steven explained that it allows you to charge a phone or a tablet on that second USB-C port. Again, makes perfect sense. Next are two USB-A ports, and I explained earlier that when I had the display connected via USB-C, I plugged in a webcam and USB microphone to those USB-A ports. But next to the USB-A ports is a USB Type-B port. USB-B is the connector you see on printers and other peripherals. You know, it's kind of a square thing. I was simply baffled why the ViewSonic display would have this port. Back to Stephen for the answer. He pointed out that when you're using USB-C for connectivity, the display becomes a USB hub automatically. But if you connect over HDMI or DisplayPort, then the USB signal hasn't been delivered to the monitor. To get USB to the display, you need to connect a USB-B to USB-A cable to the computer. I tested Steven's hypothesis. I hooked up the M1 Mac Mini via HDMI, and I tried using the USB-A ports for a keyboard and mouse, and as expected, they didn't work. That was with them connected straight into the display. But then I connected the included USB-B to USB-A cable, and the keyboard and mouse started working. I didn't get around to testing the included DisplayPort to DisplayPort cable because I was too lazy to dig out enough adapters to make that work. 
I really don't take for granted that ViewSonic includes the cables you need. I mean, seriously, how rare is that? While the VP2785 2K really does have you covered with pretty much every connector you could need, I do have one complaint. I really, truly dislike the placement of the connectors on the back. All of the connectivity is on a backplane that faces down, but it's not at the bottom of the display, it's from the middle of the display back. That means if you tilt forward the five degrees it can go forward, you can't see the connectors from the back because it doesn't tilt forward far enough. And from the front, even tilting at 21 degrees back doesn't give you any view at all. You can't see under there. I even had the display on the edge of a desk and I kneeled down on the floor and tried to look up and I still couldn't see all the connectors. My solution was to take that photo of the backplane that I told you I, I took, and I, I took that with the display lying face down on a table. So I took that photo, now I've got a reference photo. That way later, when I was swapping cables in and out, I could refer to the photo so I'd have a starting point of where a connector was, and then blindly try to connect the cable. Maybe the best method would be to plug in all the cables with the display face down and just leave them hanging off the back and only plug and unplug them from the computer side. One thing I'm not used to is having controls for the display available on the display itself. The VP2785 2K has a touch-sensitive power button in the bottom right. I'm a fan of touch sensitivity, but I've bumped it accidentally a few times while adjusting the display height or angle, and at first I was really confused when the display wouldn't work. It turned dark. I'm sure you could get used to it, but it, it did, you know, kind of surprised me. Next to that power button are five little white dots. These are also touch-sensitive buttons. With these controls, you can change the color profile, switch inputs, adjust contrast and brightness, and adjust the volume. I was surprised to see a volume control because the VP2785 2K doesn't have built-in speakers, but Stephen Getz pointed out there is a headphone jack in the display section of the connectors. I fished around on that underneath connector panel until I got my headphones plugged in, and sure enough, I could hear Bart's dulcet tones from a recent Programming by Stealth episode. Now, the odd thing is, you can't control the volume to the headphones from the Mac. You can only control the volume and mute via these on-screen controls, and the process is laborious. Here's the order of what you got to do. Tap any of the five dots, and that brings up this control window on screen. Tap the dot under a right chevron button that'll allow you to navigate to the next tab, which is volume, because it starts with input select, and then it's like audio adjust. Then you tap the dot under the check mark, and that selects that volume control. Tap the dot under the check mark again to get to the volume slider. Finally, tap the dots under the left-right chevrons to move the volume up or down. In these same menus, you can get to mute and change the audio input, but it's just as tedious. I don't know about you, but I think I'd plug my headphones into my computer and have two cables to connect rather than go through all that faffing about just to adjust the volume. I'm not sure why other manufacturers like LG make monitors where you can adjust the volume with the keyboard controls or the sound preferences pane, and you can't with ViewSonic. I checked in with ViewSonic on this, and they do have an application called vDisplay Manager that lets you adjust the volume through software, and you can adjust the color profiles and other settings through that instead of these laborious on-screen menus. It seems kind of like a lot of overhead, though, to launch an app when you just want to turn the sound down. I was also a little disappointed to see that the vDisplay Manager software was not a signed application. It's kind of, I don't know, feels a little like they're bolting on the ability to work with a Mac. It's, it's kind of afterthoughty. Well, now, you know I don't keep any Windows machines in my house. And at first it was a matter of protest, but these days I'm a bit less rabid on the topic. I just haven't gotten around to having a Windows PC. 
I happen to have the opportunity to test the VP2785 2K with a Windows laptop, though. Over USB-C, the display worked to champ, exactly as it did on the Mac. Over HDMI, something odd happened. The cursor was noticeably jumpy on screen, which I didn't observe when I was connected over USB-C. I contacted ViewSonic about it, and they suspect that the PC had chosen a 75 Hz refresh rate rather than 60 Hz. Unfortunately, I didn't still have access to the PC to test the theory, and uh, with a Mac connected, it defaults to 60 Hz, and the display's preference pane will not change, allow you to change it from 60 Hz, and so I couldn't force it to go to 75 to try to break it, but the fact that the Mac is forcing it to 60 Hz makes me think they were probably right about that refresh rate. The bottom line is that I find the VP2785 2K to be a very solid display with good resolution at 2K. It's very versatile with three different options from the fairly modern USB 3.1 to HDMI and DisplayPort connectors. The price point in the mid $600 range makes it much less expensive than 4K displays and yet much better resolution than the cheaper 1080p displays. The, they also, like I said, they have a lot of different models. They do have a 2K version in their VX line, which uh, is even less expensive. So that might be look, worth looking at too. I put a link in the show notes to all of the different models. On the VP2785 uh, 2K, I, I wish the connectors were easier to get to, but I love the display height allowing for good ergonomics regardless of seat height. And did I mention they come with every cable you could possibly need? If the VP2785 2K isn't quite the display you're looking for, like I said, remember, ViewSonic has 118 more. If you narrow it down to just the professional line, there are 63 from which you can choose, six of which support USB 3.1 over USB-C. The 4K version is $919, as I mentioned, and that's, but think about this, that's almost $400 less than the 27-inch LG 5K display. If you're in the market for a new monitor, I'd give ViewSonic a look. Check them out at ViewSonic.com. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at Allison at PodFeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at PodFeet. Remember, everything good starts with PodFeet.com, right? You can go to PodFeet.com slash Patreon if you want to become a patron of the PodFeet podcast. If you'd rather make a one-time donation, we've got PayPal. And of course, it's at PodFeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join our Slack, it's at podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time, like KJ Miller did this week, and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.